wondrous walruses out there welcome to a little greener welcome back for our second week uh i'm one of your hosts casey and i'm sarah thanks for listening and we're so excited to be on episode two so uh yay woo so this will be our first kind of regular episode we're gonna break into our our what we're gonna expect to be our usual format but we'll see we're gonna grow and learn um so hey sarah how was your week Anytime somebody asks me that question, I forget everything that has happened <laughs> you've to me ever done. Ever. <laughs> I think it was fine. I can't think of anything particularly exciting that happened to me this week, though. Where Casey and I are, we've had a little bit of up and down weather this past week. So we've had some lovely days. I've been working most of those lovely days. We've had some kind of, it's, kind of a lousy day today too so uh it's been good though not not too much exciting for me anything fun for you this week um as you know i am overcommitted on too many projects so it is just Always. me running on a treadmill trying to make sure that i get the things <laughs> i need done but you're right today was a pretty lousy day it's windy and rainy so we'll see if that affects any of our recording um hopefully not hopefully you don't pick up on that but uh hopefully, hopefully it'll prevent no trees falling Yes, Sarah has a number of large trees in her backyard that she is concerned about crushing her. Um, They're mostly so. great. They're mostly great until it's windy. <laughs> we love trees. Just dying ones pose a certain hazard. <laughs> yeah, so we'll see how that goes. It is my it is my Friday today when we're recording this, so I have got my weekend coming up, and I think it's going to be nice. So maybe we'll get get the doggo out for a good walk that he hasn't gotten to have in a while. Oh, nice. Yeah. For those of you who work in like the traditional nine to five world, sometimes when you work in other industries, we call it my Friday and we <laughs> mix up our weeks, which I have a friend who really hates it when we do that. Cause he's friends with all the same people who work <laughs> with us, but, uh, no, it is your Friday. It is my Wednesday right now. And that's confusing to everyone. You have no idea when we're recording. And also, yeah, I was going to say, yeah, we don't know when we're anything this Neither yet. So of those days of the week. <laughs> uh, anyway, well, awesome. Uh, always glad to be here again with you, Casey. So thanks for hanging out with me tonight. And I, I don't know if y'all can hear it, but, but the mascots have already started. My dog has decided that immediately after starting a video recording, he needs to play with his blue and purple squeaky hippopotamus toy so apologies for that going on in the priorities yeah. when, you're, when you're murray so so casey i want to start off with a little sort of introduction question this week and this is going to tie into our topic that we're going to be talking about later on in this episode and also kind of ties into a little bit of what we talked about last week, if you were here for that. But I'm, I'm curious, we talked about our, our journey with nature and conservation and the environment last week. This week, I wanted to focus on our childhoods. So do you remember, if you think back to when you're a kid, do you, do you remember sort of how much time you spent just outdoors doing whatever, how much time you spent outside and what sorts of, of things that you did in the great outdoors when you were a kid? Yeah, I uh, kind of a dual answer to this. So while I was at home, I grew up in a suburban neighborhood that didn't have a lot of nature adjacent to us. So really like the outside spaces we had were our little backyard, the park down the street with the playground, and then we were really close to the high school, which is just like a blank field. Um, and my mom had mandatory outside time 
which yeah we hate it (laughs) (laughs) Um, and I do think it's kind of correlated to the fact that our outdoor spaces were not necessarily like the most exciting places like my parents like kudos to them they got us a little playground in the back and I remember spending a lot of time trying to dig a hole to China um so I did a lot of that uh very Casey that's very ambitious and that is so on brand (laughs) brand (laughs) just I decided that um but my grandparents house um their backyard has a pretty substantial pond in it and woods And as I got a little bit older and we were actually allowed to be out around the water unsupervised because that was a big like uh, fear as my grandmother's brother had drowned. So we were all like had to be supervised. So we were a certain age, but right actually at the back of the pond exits down a creek that then went off the property into these kind of scrappy woods. And we would explore down there, my cousins and I, and we would play games and like pretend we were great explorers out there and we would name like the tiny little drops in the waterfalls quote unquote which were not much of a fall to speak of but (laughs) um that I remember really loving to be outdoors as I got older I became a computer kid as those became more (laughs) accessible but um definitely between my sister and I I was considered the the outdoor one while she was more of the indoor one just putting mud on my face and all sorts of weird yeah. stuff. Yeah. What about well, you? Well, I, I always have a follow-up question for oh, you. What, what, what was your mandatory outdoor time? Do you remember like how much, what, what was your mandated, how much time did you have to spend? Outdoors? Gosh, I, I don't know if it was like a day-to-day thing, but sometimes my mom would just be like, you need to go outside. And I'm pretty sure it's, it was about an hour, which felt like forever, but really is a great amount of time to force a child to not be indoors laying on the couch saying I'm bored or watching television. So I, kudos to her. I didn't appreciate it then, but I am big supporter now. Yeah. Fair what enough. about you? We, so we did not, did not have mandatory outdoor time. And I had to ask my mom this question because that is how terrible my memory is. I'm like, what did I do as a kid? was I a kid I don't remember um (laughs) Sarah came out into the world a fully formed adult um and she her response was was that we did spend a fair amount of time outside so I can't really quantify it but we did have so when I was younger up until the time I was 10 ish I think we lived in a house that had a, a nice yard uh, and we were within very easy walking distance to what I vaguely recall as being a pretty nice park that did ha- it did have the ball fields and, and playgrounds and things like that, but it did have actually a pretty su- substantial amount of just green nature space to sort of un- unmanicured green space, which is pretty nice and something we'll talk about a little bit later on too. So I had access to that. And I think just by nature of when I grew up and having, you know, neighborhood friends nearby that we would go walk to each other's houses, we would go outside bike riding, rollerblading, those types of things. I did get a pretty good amount of time outside even, you know, things like, I remember our swing set that we had in the yard, which isn't necessarily nature play, so to speak, but still good time outside. I remember, I I again just have this vague memory of like a little 
sort of thicket area almost between the bushes in our yard where I would go uh, and hang out or hide out in a little bit as well. So I think, yeah, even though I would not necessarily have described myself as being an outdoor kid, I think just by 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 virtue of where I was and 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 when I was growing up, that I did spend a, a substantial amount of time outdoors. A little bit later on, so after I was around that ten years of age or so, we did move to a suburb that didn't have those as many green spaces right nearby. But there was a pond I remember in in the subdivision that I lived in. Um, so you know there were there were still those sort of outdoor activities as well. I remember biking and, and rollerblading around that neighborhood too. So yeah, we do uh, a lot of bike riding. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So awesome. It's just interesting, interesting to hear other people's experiences. And we're going to come back to why I wanted to ask that question a little bit later on in our main discussion. Uh, But before we get into that, Casey's got a little review for us. So stay tuned for that. All right. Hi, everybody. We're back and we are here for my review segment. And as a reminder, during this segment, we could review books, we could review movies and documentaries, places. And today we're going to review an activity and it is called herping. So if if you've never heard that word before, it sounds like a dirty word. It's not a dirty word. It's actually um, basically the equivalent and in some ways the opposite of bird watching, um, but for reptiles and amphibians. And I'll explain why. So reptiles and amphibians uh, live in different places than birds. So bird watching, you're going out in nature and you're looking up in the trees, mainly looking for all of these these birds flying around. Um, And so herping is that for reptiles and amphibians but instead of looking all around in the trees you're going to be looking under logs and in mud and wetland areas and down holes and all sorts of different things so uh, a couple weeks ago i went herping with my uh fiance and our friend former co-worker um who are both reptile guys and we went down to kentucky because it is salamander breeding season um which you may not have known i did not either that february is good salamander breeding season so we went down there and we uh went herping and i will say i am a fair weather herper for sure it definitely takes a little bit of dedication but it's kind of in some ways cooler than bird watching don't come for me birders but you can actually you know hold the animals which is pretty cool so we found some salamanders while we were down there um fun fact the us is home to the most species of salamanders of any other country in the world so we are very salamander rich and so we looked i did under- not know that yeah right that, that is a fun fact that and turtles another herping species you're looking for most species of turtles in the world the us and so we found a lot of uh, salamanders down there. We have gone to other, basically like our little mini vacations oftentimes revolve around what season is it for this animal to come out? So we went to a vacation for snake road and we looked for snakes. Um, this is your disclaimer that if you decide to go herping, you should be aware of the animals in the area. So my first 
piece of advice for herping is to get a field guide of your local animals and know what you're looking for, what's out there. And also so that you know what you should and should not approach. So if you have venomous snakes around the area, um, or, you know, you don't really want to stick your hand down a random hole, uh, that you don't know what could live there because you don't want to be bit by anything. Uh, but you should definitely know what's in the area. You can kind of know what you're looking for, the sort of habitats they try and, and inhabit. But I know it can get pretty addicting for a lot of people I know who are really into those species because you never know what you can find. And you can find some really cool, rare stuff right in your backyard, local areas here in the U.S. Um, so for herping in general, I like to take lots of pictures of those animals. So we'll post those to the Instagram along with some other photos for this, this episode. Um, I give herping a four out of five because I am not really good at birding. Um, I don't have the quick enough eyes. Everyone always tells me, go look at this tree and tries to describe what part of the tree the bird is on. And it's a branch, it's on a branch on this giant tree and I can't see it. So I, I do better with herping. Um, so four out of five stars for herping. I will say we also went road cruising that night. And if you don't know what road cruising is, it is herping at night in a car. And you're hoping that the reptiles and amphibians are crossing the street and then you can stop the car, get out, grab them, help them across the road, and also admire and find what species you have. And we did that up a mountain at night in the fog on a one lane uh, road, and we found two frogs. And so I'm going to give road cruising a one out of five. That was not my favorite thing that we've ever done. That's for a hard thing. pass. That's me. a, yeah. If you have anxiety about roads, like it's not, not, I was going to say, at least in that setting, there may be other places and locations where that would be fun and on a mountain in the fog on a small road is not one of them. For yeah. Me. And that was my exposure to this particular brand of herping road cruising. So, um, perhaps there will be, I'm sure there will be other times that we go road cruising because I'm marrying this person who likes to do this. So I'm sure it will happen again. Um, normal disclaimers of like, don't walk in the middle of the road while there's people driving and be very careful keeping contact, you know, be conscious of your safety. But also I think if you have a kid who's like really into trying to catch frogs and things like this, this is a really cool way that you can get them interested in their local wildlife and teach them constructive and respectful ways to interact with them. So definitely, you know, take, take a look at some advice. There's local herp herpetological groups that will help you along. If you can join your local group for that and they can, that's a good way to network and find friends. If you're an adult and you've moved to a new area and that's something you're interested in. So yeah, that is my review for the week for herping. That's awesome. Yes. Herp responsibly, everybody. Herp responsibly. I, yeah. I think it sounds fun. I am not, I think reptiles and amphibians are amazing. Always up for learning more about them. I do not feel like I know very much about reptiles and amphibians. So my thought for this as someone who would be a complete amateur herper is what Casey said. Yeah, just get yourself a field guide and, and go and have fun with it and take photos of what you see. And don't let yourself get stressed out if you don't know what everything is because you can always, there are ways to find out later. Just go and explore and have fun or get yourself a friend who is a herper. Yeah, yeah. And also, 
also, uh, there's always the iNaturalist app. We didn't use that during this, but if you're not familiar with it, that can be a way for you to help identify species. Sarah looks like she has a shout out. We're going to talk about that later too. Perfect tie-in. So yes, that is a a free app that you can look at. And that's a good way to help have people help you identify species and also help people figure out some population data as well. So that ends our review for this week. Thanks for listening and stay tuned for the main body of the episode. Welcome back, everybody, and we're about to get started with our main discussion topic this week, and the TLDR version of what we're going to talk about today is basically how spending time in nature is good for us and good for nature, and we have two sort of separate but very, very related concepts that we're going to talk about to sort of tie into that. So I'm going to start off by just introducing us to a couple of terms that you might not be familiar with. So the first one is something called ecophobia. And this is a word that was coined by uh, an environmental educator and author named David Sobel back in 1996. So he's kind of the the person credited with this word and building of this concept. And basically ecophobia, there's a couple of different ways that you can look at it, but ecophobia can be described as this sort of disconnect that people have from nature. And sometimes this can can be displayed as sort of just a, a fear of the outdoors. And a lot of times that's like a an irrational fear, a fear of things that aren't really going to happen. So this might be like being afraid of stepping outside your door and getting bit by a venomous snake when you live in an area where there are no venomous snakes. It can also be a more sort of overwhelming fear. So a fear or anxiety about big environmental issues. So sort of this idea of being overwhelmed by the state of our planet, by the state of our natural world, and a feeling like it's too much, it's too weighty, and there's nothing you can do about it. And so you sort of just shut down. Um, so that's that's kind of what ecophobia is. And David Sobel talks about sort of how this develops, and it can be tied a lot of times to just a lack of spending time in nature, first of all. So that's why we're talking a little bit about the time that we spent in nature growing up. It can also be tied to burdening people too much with environmental problems, especially younger kids. So a lot of times ecophobia is talked about in connection with kids, although it's something that can affect anyone. Um, But David Sobel is an environmental educator who's really pushed the idea of place-based education and age-appropriate environmental education for kids. So this sort of burdening of kids with environmental problems before they are old enough to sort of be equipped to handle it can lead to this problem of uh, disconnection with nature. 
I have an ecophobia story. Go for it. So when I, I told you I grew up in the suburbs, um, but I grew up in a very low income area. So while I was very exposed to nature as a kid, most of my classmates, I would say were not. And in fifth grade, we went on a trip to Hawk Mountain. So I'm from Pennsylvania and it's up uh, towards the Poconos and the Appalachian Mountains. And uh, my classmates were very afraid of the squirrels. And my dad was a chaperone. I remember him saying, why are you afraid of the squirrels? You see squirrels at home. Uh, and they were like, but these are wild squirrels. And I think it was really just a lack of never really being out in a truly natural space. Like we talk about outdoor areas, but we're really talking about nature. We manicure this world around us. And so outside is not equivalent to nature and spending time in, in an actual natural setting with natural. Absolutely. And a lot of times when we talk about environmental education with kids, things that they might learn about in school are things that are far away. So they, you know, you teach units on the rainforest and the oceans and that sort of thing. We don't really spend a lot of time necessarily educating kids or allowing kids time to get to know the nature that is right around them. So yeah, those natural areas that were are, are near you where you're growing up. Um, so yeah, that's ex that's exactly what we're talking about here. And and so we'll, we'll get more into that in a little bit. And for us, for Casey and myself as environmental educators, that's why this this concept of ecophobia is so important to be aware of and to think about when we're having conversations with kids. So that's that's kind of one side of the story and it's almost it's it's almost hard to talk about ecophobia because it's a little bit of a feedback loop almost, right? So being disconnected from nature can lead to ecophobia. If you have ecophobia, if you have this sort of fear of the outdoors, it's going to lead to you not spending time outside, right? So there's this kind of ecophobia cycle. And then the other concept that I want to introduce today is something called nature deficit disorder. And this term was coined by a gentleman named Richard Louvre in 2005. And it ties in very closely to this idea of ecophobia. But nature deficit disorder is focusing more on how this lack of time in nature impacts us and our health. So back in 2005, when Richard Liu first talked about this, and he's, he's an author of, of several books. He wrote a book called Last Child in the Woods, which is where this, this idea of nature deficit disorder was put out there. And back in that time, there, there was not a whole lot of study or not a whole lot of work being done on the impacts of nature and and human health. So he kind of brought this a little bit more to the forefront. And today there's more and more research being done and research supporting this idea that he's talked about. So this is something that is being increasingly studied. And, and Richard Louvre has written, he's written several great books since then. And he's also founder of an organization called the Children in Nature Network, whose focus is to help get kids spending more time outside. You wouldn't go to the 
doctor and get Correct. diagnosed yes. with nature deficiency disorder. This is more of a, a, what you would think a societal diagnosis. Would you say that's correct? It's not like a medical diagnosis. Yes, 100%. And Richard Louvre is, is very, very upfront and about that as well. So this is, this is not a medical diagnosis. We'll talk a little bit later on about what some of those human health implications are, that are tied in to nature, but he's not at all saying that this is, this is any sort of thing that, yeah, you're going to go to the doctor and, and get diagnosed with. It's just a term that he uses to talk about this phenomenon. So to, to kind of get into the conversation about these things, I think one of the things to talk about first is, is it like, are we spending less time in nature? Because I think for me, I don't know if you feel this way, Casey, or not, but I have sort of anecdotally felt this, seeing younger folks grow up, it, it feels to me like less time is being spent in nature by kids as they grow up and also just all of us, humanity as a whole, like even as adults, we're spending less time in nature than we used to. So that's always something that I've sort of felt, but looking at, is that really what's happening? Is that what, what the evidence is, is showing? And again, you can find a lot of different sets of data out there. So there are, there are different ways that you can talk about this, but generally speaking, studies would suggest yes. So there are several studies out there. They're, they look at different things. So some of them are looking at more just hours spent outdoors, whatever that means. Some of them are looking at more time spent in specific outdoor activities, which is different than just spending time outside. But they, these all seem to suggest that yes, we are as a whole spending less time in nature. So there's a few different studies that, that we can go into. There's one uh, back from 2008 that suggested that, this is for uh, Americans in particular, that we were taking part in fewer outdoor activities each year. So the, the percentage of Americans take, uh, taking part in what they qualified as outdoor activities was declining at a little more than 1% each year since the late 1980s. So there's been a constant sort of trend uh, of decline. There was a study from the Outdoor Foundation that showed that kids in particular took part in about 15% fewer outdoor activities in 2018 than they did even as few as six years before. And then there was a study, I don't know how to pronounce this company, I think it is from Canada, but Kamek, it's a footwear and apparel company, but they did a study uh, just a couple of years ago that was looking at uh, America and, and Canada, and in particular noted that American kids are spending 35% less time in outdoor free play than their parents did. So again, I'm just looking at summaries of these studies and you can, you can find different bits and pieces of information out there, but overall research does seem to suggest that we as a whole are spending less time in nature. So why is that? Again, probably a lot of different reasons, but probably one that jumps to the forefront for most of us if we're thinking about today's day and age is technology. So Casey, I'm curious about that from you too. We've talked about our outdoor time as kids. Do you remember what things were like technology-wise for you? Do you remember when you got your first computer or cell phone? 
Did you do the electronic video games, TV? What was your the technology side of it like for you growing up? So we got our first computer. I, th- I think we had one beforehand that was literally like like three colors. Yeah. Like it wasn't a, a a modern computer. We got our first family computer, and we had the computer room in the year two thousand. So I was seven years old, and it was a big deal. Obviously, when you used the internet you then couldn't use the phone. So we weren't allowed to be on the internet all the time, but we definitely played a lot of those games. We didn't really have video game consoles. We ended up getting like a Game Boy and a GameCube, but I was the oldest cousin on both sides, both like oldest kid in my generation. And so I don't think being a girl, my parents necessarily were like video games is exactly what she should be doing. And I also think that my parents have always kind of been conscious of this phenomenon that the more tech that we introduce, like we had no TV weeks occasionally and I was devastated every time it was no TV week. I was like, how would we survive without it? And I got, when I got my first cell phone, I think I was 11 cause we were starting to walk home alone and it wasn't a smartphone. It was just a, right. a dial up phone. Yeah. A regular phone. I like, I had a, a screen with a picture of my dog on it, but it didn't do any sort of extremely fun functions. So I didn't, I don't think that that really impacted my amount of time outside, but I I think, yeah, technology is definitely, maybe we'll talk more about this later, but I also think that the amount of schoolwork that ended up piling on as I got older also impacted that, but yeah, no technology definitely personally. And then also watching now my, uh, extended relatives raise their children and, and my little cousins technology is definitely a much more integrated part of their life from day one, basically than it was for us. What about you? So yeah, I'm, I'm a little older even, so it didn't come. I, we, and not just me this time, my mom couldn't remember either. We don't remember when we got our first computer. We feel like I had to have been in my early teens, I think, maybe immediately before preteen, but uh, so certainly the internet was a different thing back then. It, it, it was not the, you were, I'm always connected, always online that, that it is today. So that was very different. I didn't get my first cell phone, which was definitely not a smartphone until I was in college, go, going away to college. So I didn't have that, but that, and that's not to say that we didn't have technology. I mean, we, uh, we, my parents did limit our TV time. We did have the Nintendo game systems growing up. So there was certainly a fair share of technology for sure. But I don't think that it was as, it certainly wasn't as prominent of a thing as it is for people growing up today. I also do just want to point out that I'm not, I'm not saying all this to knock it at all. I, technology has done wonderful things for us. And I am sitting here on a laptop with recording devices and my smartphone sitting in front of me. So, so this is not to knock technology in any way. This is just kind of showcasing that this, this has changed the way that we live, right? And I do think there's a lot of evidence that access to all of this technology has impacted the way we spend our time, including our outdoor time. So uh, you can also find some, some numbers to back that up if that's, if that's a thing that interests you. According to the Children and Nature Network that I mentioned a little bit earlier, kids spend up to 44 hours per week in front of a screen and only about 10 minutes 
per day playing outside. So those are like staggering numbers to me. And a thing that, you know, that isn't specified here that Casey, you just kind of mentioned is this is saying screen time. This isn't saying they're spending 44 hours playing games on their phone. This is, this is how schoolwork is done now, right? So, you know, we're not necessarily quantifying what that screen time is and whether that's positive or negative. That's just a lot of screen time and not a lot of time playing outside. Um, and then Speaking of those smartphones, there was a common sense media study that showed over half of kids today have a smartphone before they're 11 years old, and 84% of teens today have their own phone. So again, it's just a recognition that technology has, has become a very integral part of our daily lives, and so that's something to, to be conscious of. So definitely a factor in our, in our outdoor play urbanization, I think, is a big factor as well, and a lot of people just not having access to those green spaces in the same way, and I think Casey and I even both mentioned that in, in our childhood, child, childhoods and, and growing up, and the urbanization is just projected to keep increasing, right? So this is, this is a thing that we'll have to think about in terms of green spaces in our cities and that sort of thing. But uh, increased urbanization and urban sprawl is definitely an issue in, in allowing people to get good time in nature as well. Yeah. And I, I think that it's also important to bring up that we, we have a, a lot of privilege because we are two white ladies who mm -hmm. also grew up with parents who I think both sets prioritized time outside to a certain extent and really had the means to make that available to us. And also had at least the experience or the knowledge to recognize that that was important. And if people aren't growing up that way originally, that makes it even harder to then bring up your kids in a way that feels really unfamiliar. And that's not even including the amount of, you know, having a TV babysit your kids is a thing that people do. And that is easier than supervising them and outdoors. And it's more cost effective too, for some mm -hmm. people too. So yeah, absolutely, Casey, we have to recognize our own, our own privilege. And, uh, you know, there, there were other studies that I was looking at prior to recording today that, that talk about barriers to getting outside and, and cost was definitely one of them. And um, so I think, you know, that's so, but you could look at it that way as both the ease of, of using technology to help with kids, it can be more cost effective than having them, you know, go to a babysitter or a daycare or, or, or what have you. But there's cost involved in nature recreation as well, too, and certain outdoor activities and, and things like that. So those can certainly be barriers as well, for sure. And then another thing that we're seeing, even with some of our outdoor spaces is that there's an increase in this idea of structured play and not that and again not saying that this is a bad thing but there is an, a, a tendency now uh, Richard Louv talks about this a little bit in in Last Child in the Woods that when cities are looking to build parks they're looking at how can I decrease my liability as much as possible here. So when you are looking to build a park, you're looking to get a flat, wide open green space to put that soccer field or that baseball diamond, not so much an opportunity to allow people to spend time free play exploring in wild nature. So that's kind of an interesting thing that I don't think about 
too much. I'm like, yeah, park, play, outdoors, good thing. And it is, uh, but there is some evidence suggesting that unstructured free play is, is even more important than that structured time outside. And I think time is the other issue there, right? So we may have people that are involved in these structured outdoor activities. So again, being on a soccer team, being on a baseball team, those are great things. Kids today have a, a lot of extracurricular activities, a lot of hours spent in school, a lot of hours spent with homework. All of these things are part of their daily lives. So where do you fit in that outdoor free play, right? So there, there are a lot of barriers and issues to think about with this. Yeah. I wonder if this also is tied to kind of our society's obsession with productivity. Like mm -hmm. we need to make sure that we're using our time efficiently and that something comes of it, uh, rather than just what play is really meant to be. If you're a kid, it's kind of imposing that adult structure upon children. And I can also remember like when my sister was going into high school, after school, she had three, two or three hours of soccer practice. And then she had three hours of band practice. So she was outside the whole time, but she wasn't getting home until nine o'clock at night. My mom had to drive her McDonald's walking from soccer practice to band practice. So the amount of time kids have in their day that aren't filled up now with things that are preparing you for the future, it, it's just, it's yeah. dwindling. <laughs> in part of my job, I work with teenagers and yes listening to them talk about all of the things they do seeing them talk about already you know as they're preparing for their future and college and career and all of that I'm in my brain I'm going I just I don't think that I could do all of the things that these kids are doing so yeah for sure I think that that is a societal, there is a definite societal pressures, I guess, today to, to be busy and to be productive and to, to think that that is, that's the most important thing, right? So that can be a hurdle too, as well to spending time outside. And I think you might say listening to this, well, so what? Okay, that's the way society is today. So we've got all this technology. We've got, we are raising kids that are busy and productive and do all of these extracurriculars and uh, do their homework and, and all of these things are good things. So we're not spending as much time in outdoor unstructured free play. Okay, big deal whatever. They can learn about the environment in, in other ways and it's fine. And so I think that that comes back to, again, those those concepts that we're talking about with, with ecophobia and nature deficit disorder. So there are potential human health impacts tied to how much time we spend in nature. And again, this is a growing field. There's a, a lot of studies out there. There need to be more studies and better studies looking at these things. But what studies are suggesting right now and, and keep kind of backing up the more we get is that spending time in nature is beneficial with both physical and psychological health. So we're seeing a lack of time in nature play resulting in or or could potentially have impact on issues health issues like obesity nearsightedness which likely ties into that screen time as well lack of attention anxiety issues and that spending time in nature helps to reduce our stress it makes us happier and even some studies looking at a potential boost in our immune system which is really interesting from spending time in nature. Um, so there are a lot of good, good resources and, and things that you can, can look up 
for those studies. But I would also say that again, anecdotally, those are things that I feel too. So if I have a week, you know, I, this, I really should go take my dog for a walk this weekend because Casey knows we've had a stressful week and probably some time out there in the green space would, would make me feel a little, a little better. And um, so that's one aspect of it is this human health issue. Casey, do you have anything to add on that? Yeah. I, I think like what you're saying is adults experience burnout Mm -hmm. and I think kids do too. It's just manifesting itself in different ways and we're just not allowing them to be as physically active as they used to be. And also not really giving them that natural way out. I think interestingly, there's, there's actually an opposite word of ecophobia and that's biophilia. And that was coined by E.O. Wilson, who's a really amazing ecologist, who's really like foundational to our field. And his theory, I wrote my uh, college thesis on the Lorax. And so I did a lot of, of this sort of like this, this work too. Um, but it, basically it's his theory is that humans are connected to nature and we are innately benefited by nature. And we have this desire to be in nature and and he cites some of these same things where being in nature improves mood even just seeing images of nature can relieve stress so that to him supports the idea that really like the the natural state for human beings is being immersed in nature and anything that's different from that of course would impact our biology and psychology because it's not the natural state of how we evolved and and were meant to be in this world yeah, and I am glad that you mentioned that about even looking at pictures too, because that that again is, is something we'll we'll touch back on a, a little bit later. But so all all of these potential health implications for us, but also very interestingly, and this is another reason why I think encouraging people to to just spend time outside is so important to me, and this idea of of exploring nature in your own backyard is so important to me, is lack of time in nature can also lead to a lack of empathy, a lack of connection with the natural world, and a lack of action on environmental issues. So Casey and I last week talked a little bit about our journeys in this field and what inspired us to become environmental educators and how we ended up here. This is something that there have been studies done on this as well. So again, going back to to Last Child in the Woods, back in the 70s, there was a poll of environmentalists asking them really what what inspired them to get into their field to, to become environmentalists. And overwhelmingly, they cited time spent outside as a kid and said that that was a major influence in their career. So that's not to say that there were not any responses that, oh, I had this, you know, this terrible experience in nature, or I I learned about this terrible environmental issue. And that's what inspired me. That did happen occasionally too, but overwhelmingly this idea of positive time in nature as a kid is what initially spurs people on to become active in this field. Um, But it's not just environmentalists as well. There have also been studies just looking at adults, just generally, regardless of profession, who participate in environmental actions. Um, And even in, in studies like that, this time spent out in nature was an influencing factor. So if we lose, if we're we're focused on all of these other things and we lose this ability to 
just spend time free play in nature, especially as kids, we're going to end up with fewer and fewer people each year that feel passionate about protecting nature, that feel passionate about, about conservation and sustainability when we really need the opposite to be happening right now. So that's why it's something that is so near and dear to my heart as an environmental educator to really not forget about the incredible nature in our own backyard and really focus on inspiring people to spend time outside. Yeah. Use that imagination. Gotta get out there and just be in it. I think the whole constructing nature as something separate from ourselves really is that that separation, that line really promotes that, that sort of ecophobia and that inability to conceptualize why something in nature then would impact your life as well as an adult. Yeah. So if we're thinking about what we've talked about so far, is this an issue? Here's why this might be an issue. So what do we do about it now? If we're recognizing that we are spending less time in nature, there are all these barriers, there are all of these challenges, but we know why it's so important. What do we do about it? How do we fix it? And David Sobel, talking about ecophobia, would say that you know one of the most important things to think about is that age-appropriate environmental education. So I have a, a quote from him that, that I, I always use, but what, he says, what's important is that children have an opportunity to bond with the natural world, to learn to love it before being asked to heal its wounds. And that, it's, it's a great quote, but it, it, I do feel like it should also be pretty common sense. If you, like Casey was just saying, if you don't feel connected to it. If you feel like it's something unrelated, why should you care? Why should you do anything about it? So really thinking about with that with our kids, thinking about what they know, thinking about what they understand and structuring our how we talk about nature and how we talk about the environment with them appropriately is going to be so important. So David Sobel kind of breaks it down into a few different age ranges. So if you are listening and you are a parent or have younger siblings or family members, or if you're an educator and, and this is something that's of interest to you, things that you can think about is, is when you're dealing with younger kids in that sort of age three or four to seven years of age, it really should just be all about that empathy and that connection. Spend time outside in your own backyard Things like, you know, wh what, how many things can you find that are yellow out here? You know, let's go, you know, see what that tree feels like over there. Let's find some leaves and look at all the different shapes. All of those things, just encouraging that curiosity and that wonder that are going to help them connect to the, the, the world are so important. And again, you know, thinking about what they know and don't know, if I'm talking to a six-year-old about rainforests in Southeast Asia, that has no <laughs> meaning to them. What do, what they know themselves, they know their family, they know their, they know what they can see out their window, basically. So just thinking about what's going to be familiar and, and understandable to them. Also, this is a good time to model behavior for kids. If you are someone who has an, like an insect phobia, for example, if you can keep that under control so that you don't scream every time you see a bug that has a huge impact those kids like in their developmental stages are just trying to figure out like what's dangerous and how i'm supposed to relate to everything around me even if you're someone who's personally not super engaged with nature allowing them to to engage with nature and modeling that empathetic behavior is a really good way to start them on that path good point 
So when you're getting into those, the next sort of age group up seven to 11, again, building on, on that, that empathy, what we've now kind of developed this sort of care and connection to you, to really exploring. And there are little ways. So if you've been modeling kind of that, that good behavior that, that Casey was talking about too, that age seven to 11 can be a little more engaged, even, even doing basic things like recycling or herping. herping. Yeah. Herping would be a great (laughs) one. Yeah. But even, even thinking about some of those actions too, like, you know, turning off the lights when you leave leave a room or recycling things like that, those are maybe a little more developmentally appropriate. You don't even have to get into all the the ins and outs of whys or anything like that. Um, But those are the types of things they might be able to start seeing and doing. But again, just really encouraging that exploration. So yeah, go herping, take them on nature walks, um, go like geocaching or those sorts of things that are going to help them explore. And you can start to widen the circle a little more. So maybe it's, you know, not just what's in your backyard that they can comprehend now, but, you know, maybe they have a little better sort of map of going to the local park or something like that. So starting to expand their world a little bit. And then when you get into that preteen, early teen age, that's where that action can really start to happen too. So we've developed this empathy, we've developed this engagement and connection to the natural world. Now, how can I start to get involved? Again, I think it's really important, and we talk about this a lot in in our jobs too, Casey, but just in general, but especially with this age group, if if they are starting to get involved in environmental actions, keeping them what is accessible and achievable, right? So 14-year-olds don't drive yet. They're not making their own money, those sorts of things. So thinking about when you're getting them involved in in actions what what is still thinking about what is understandable and what is reasonable for them to be able to participate in uh david sobel has another quote that i use a lot that is just no global tragedies before the fourth grade so again you know there's no no reason to be burdening a seven-year-old with, you know, talking about how a species that's critically endangered or how quickly our rainforests are are being destroyed. It's not something that they can fully comprehend yet, and it's not something that they can really truly have direct impact in on their own. And I want to be really careful when I say that because I don't want to make it sound like kids don't have any agency or ability uh, for their own, but but just thinking about truly like what do they physically have the ability to do and the access they have. Um, so just thinking about those things and making sure our, our environmental education is age appropriate so we can avoid that sort of ecophobia, disconnect, fear, and, and overwhelm. Sarah, did you ever hear growing up like your generation is going to be the one to solve everything? You're going to be the ones to save. I don't again. I don't remember anything, so I don't remember hearing (laughs) that personally as a kid. It is certainly something that I hear a lot today, directed at youth today. I mean, like I learned about climate change when I was probably 14 years old. And I just remember people saying something along those lines, like you guys are going to be the one who fixed it, which seemed kind of absurd. And I don't think I could really put it in words at the time. Like, yes, I felt like, yes, I can do that because that's, that's me. But also like, 
I don't have any money. Right. <laughs> I'm, I don't, I'm in school still. I don't have the ability to regulate my emotions as an adult would like, there's other things that they need to be doing. And so abdicating the responsibility as adults to, to do the things that are with reasonably within our own realm. And then telling kids like, you guys got to save the rainforest. You gotta, you know, make sure like being a conscious consumer takes a lot of info, like is some, not something most adults can do, let alone kids. So Yes, I was a kid who had a save the rainforest jar, but I also thought that we would have done that already and I could move on to other things and it's an ongoing process. <laughs> so so I, I think, yeah, taking the burden off of, of kids. And I really love that quote that allowing them to learn to love the world before being asked, before being asked to heal its wounds. Like you said, being aware of, of where their knowledge base is and where their relationship is with nature is before we can burden them with all the things that we know. <laughs> and even as I sit here and say that, I know that it is a struggle for us sometimes as environmental educators, because we do know the problems that we're facing and we feel like we want to give everybody, here's what you can do. And so I think there is, does have to be that constant dial back. And that's why I keep, I have to remind myself and keep, keep going back to that quote is that, that it's okay. Their time for action will come and everyone is better served if we avoid burdening people who should not should absolutely not have that burden yeah we shouldn't burn them out before yeah. <laughs> before they hit puberty for sure <laughs> um and that's not to say lie to them you right. know kids are curious and ask questions but it's just to say that you know presenting these global scale issues is just not going to be productive for anybody yeah and again i think if if they are asking these questions and we are talking about these things and obviously every kid is individually different. So these are, these are gen general guidelines, but I think the important thing too is to just remember that you, you can focus on the positive too. So if I'm talking to a younger kid about a more serious issue, I'm also going to be sure to talk to them about what's being done to help. And so I think, making sure to recognize those positive stories and the work that conservationists are doing out there each and every day can be helpful if you if you are talking about some of those heavier things. So that's one thing that we can do is really think about our age appropriate environmental education and remembering to encourage our younger children to really just empathize and enjoy and explore the natural world. Part of that is getting outside. So again, there was this study done. I gosh, I didn't write it down. I think this was in 2019, done by the European Center for Environment and Human Health at the University of Exeter. That is quite a name. But they they did a study looking at I think it was like 20,000 people or something in the study to try to determine how much time in nature do we need to benefit? And th that study suggested that we're looking at two hours over the course of a week to get some of those human health benefits from nature. So spending two hours outside per week, I think that that is about 17 minutes per day. Somebody can correct my math if I'm wrong, uh, but about 17 minutes per day to reap some of those health benefits from spending time in nature. So just find, find 17 minutes in our busy daily lives to just get out and enjoy 
nature. Doesn't have to be two hours all at once. They looked at that in the study. It didn't matter if it was one two hour lump or that 17 minutes a day, but two hours seems to be the magic number there. And so it doesn't have to be a major experience. Like, so even thinking about like for me, one of the ways that I spend my free time is reading books a lot. And so I will on a nice day, I'll sit outside in my backyard and read a book. And again, I'm very fortunate to have a, a backyard and some green space in my backyard that, that not everybody does. But I can get some outdoor time in just like that a, a, a few minutes each day. So I think getting uh, past any notions that in order to give myself or my family this connection to nature, I've got to take them for a weekend camping trip or we have to you know, take a road trip out to Yosemite National Park or something like that. And don't get me wrong, national parks are amazing. I've never been camping, so I can't speak to that. I'm sure it's great. Those are great things uh, if you can do them. But that any any time in green space is helpful. Do look for that unstructured play, unstructured time uh, if if you can get it. So whatever you want to do, get let let your kids run around, get dirty, and do what they want to do. Yeah, I was just thinking about this kind of comparison. Like, for example, we have all of these movies coming back that are nostalgia movies, like reminiscent of something from our childhood. We obviously put a lot of stock in nostalgia. So like, I remember SpongeBob, not because SpongeBob was a major event in my life, but that SpongeBob was on every day. And so when I see SpongeBob now, it reminds me of being a kid. And so if being outside every day, even if it's not something monumental, uh, rem you know, when you're a kid. Yeah it's going to remind you of that as an adult. Now it's, yeah. it's still important. If you, if you're an adult listening to this, which I'm sure many, all of you are, yes. <laughs> um, but also if you're an adult who has We're no a children, big hit with the seven year olds. Yeah. The, yeah. <laughs> um, ecophobia. Can you say that? Um, but, uh, if you're an adult without children, this is still equally yes. important. Just, yeah. It's not just for kids. Yes. Actually, that I, I want to ask you about that uh, in a little bit as well, too, Casey, specifically about that. Uh, also, now I just have to say, I can't, is SpongeBob nostalgic now? Uh, SpongeBob, I think, is still on. Okay. So, uh, old, uh, I don't want to go down a SpongeBob okay. rabbit hole, but Rugrats, whatever you want to, like, <laughs> we were talking about Doug the other day, things that remind you of, of home you. and then will be rebooted. <laughs> The reboot nature. <laughs> yeah, yes. Hashtag reboot nature. <laughs> um, so yeah, and there, there are a ton of great resources. Again, we are in the technology age, so obviously you can Google it. Uh, I actually really like another Richard Louv book called Vitamin N that gives it just a ton of suggestions for things that you can do, activities that you can do outside. Uh, and again, I, I do not have kids and I, it, while I think the book is, is a lot directed towards families and children, I flipped through that book and I'm like, yeah, that sounds like fun. I should do that. So vitamin N could be a great resource if you're looking for ways to get outside that children and children and nature network that I mentioned earlier has a lot of great resources in terms of encouraging outdoor time as well. Do you have any resources, Casey? I mean, there's loads of books out there. You go on Amazon. There's like ones that'll be like, how to make your garden more kid friendly yeah. and you'll make a fort out of vines. It's great. So there's lots of stuff out there. The internet is a blessing and a curse. So yes. use it for good. 
Hey, and that leads right into my last point, which is kind of how can we make use of technology? We talked about some of the maybe challenges that having access to all of this technology presents, but it's not going away. I think it's important to be realistic about that, nor should it go away. So how can we make use of that technology in order to kind of encourage this outdoor time? And Casey mentioned one earlier, the iNaturalist app. If you're not familiar with that, I highly suggest downloading that one. It's a fun way, again, you know, for somebody who is not any sort of professional field biologist, if I go outside and see a cool plant or an insect, or if I'm going herping and I have no idea what I'm looking at, uh, iNaturalist is a great app. You can snap a photo of whatever you're looking at. You can post it on the app and other people can help you identify that. You can also participate in citizen science projects on iNaturalist. It's a great little resource. And so that might be a great way if you do have kids that really like spending time on their smartphones, that might be a way you can encourage them. There's lots of other ones. I I forgot to make sure that this was, was still around. I had to take it off of my phone because have an old phone that's running out of space, but there's an app that I, I used to really enjoy called Jewelbug, which was would give you different challenges. It had different categories of different actions that you could do, different environmentally friendly actions. Um, so, you know, it might have been something like turning your thermostat down a degree or turning the light off when you leave a room, or it could be big things like buying an Energy Star appliance or, or whatever. Anyway, you could compete with your friends and family and, and earn points for everything that you did. So that was kind of a, a technology encouraged way to be environmentally friendly. Um, so there's, there's all kinds of, of things out there. Even I'm thinking about things like Pokemon Go that I never, yeah. <laughs> but I, but there, that was, there was, that was, I think in the news about that a, a little bit about how it was encouraging people to get outside more and walk around and explore. So I think there's all kinds of ways that we can take advantage of technology and kind of use it to help harness this connection to nature. Yeah. And you can also like categorize your screen time to a little a little bit um my aunt used to be like well you can play this computer game that's learning based for longer than you're allowed to play this one that has to do with riding horses um although i guess that's nature, yeah, that's nature too. One. but uh but yeah i mean like kids love wild crats kids love like you can let you know can direct some of their if they want to watch tv let's watch something on pbs about orangutans or something like that so even if you are resorting to those moments where you want the TV to be the babysitter. I also remember being very sparked with joy by people like Steve Irwin and Jeff yeah. Corwin and all sorts of naturalists modeling that empathetic behavior we talked about earlier that then you can take that into nature when you get the chance. Yeah, absolutely. And there, there are now studies starting to look at <laughs> is virtual nature as helpful and, and, early studies, I think, would suggest that it it can actually still be beneficial. So even if you are just watching videos of nature or listening to nature sounds, there can be some benefits, especially in terms of like de-stress and that sort of thing. Not as good as the real thing, but- It's not going <laughs> to cure your nearsightedness. No, so. <laughs> it's not going to cure your But if that's what you've got, uh, that's a great point to 
you can take advantage of technology in that way as well. So just some ideas, some thoughts of how we can try to reconnect with nature. Casey, you, you just mentioned this too, but I did kind of want to wrap up with one last question that I think applies to all of us. I think maybe sometimes it even applies to us as environmental educators even a little more heavily because we talk about these things and are researching and constantly trying to learn more about these things each and every day. But really, for all of us, even as, as adults, how do we battle this ecophobia? I don't know about you, but I have definitely had times where I'm just, I just think to myself, like, this is, this is all just too much. And what am I doing? How, how do you battle against this sort of overwhelm, uh, over, overburdening as an adult? So that's a little bit of a hard one, but um, some of the things I think help me is recognizing when I'm doom scrolling. Mm -hmm. So that something happens on Facebook and you're scrolling and scrolling and you realize you don't really know why you're scrolling, but you're waiting for the next thing to trigger that emotion bomb. And especially during the pandemic, I think we all experienced that. But especially if you're someone who does follow a lot of like nature news or things like that, if if you're just, you know, you can, you can find a hundred the Arctic ice is melting articles a day. If you're looking for mm -hmm. it, eventually you have to recognize when that's not going to be a productive activity for you. For people who are conservation educators, that's something we need to know, but we also maybe need to occasionally take a step back from and recognize that more information is not always going to be helpful. I'm someone who generally like tries to cure my anxiety with more information. That's why I think I watch a lot of like crime shows, uh, but that's not necessarily the case every time with environmental issues. And I think really like just getting out into nature, I think many of us just find I've been sitting in front of the computer for too long. I've been talking about this same issue for too long. I, I need to go outside and like sit by a tree or yeah. <laughs> go, go look into the eyes of an animal, even if it's a pet, like something, yeah. something that's going to do your soul some good. I, I can't cure your burnout, but your ecophobia is, uh, is something that I think we could all do with more nature and yeah. that's going to, to be helpful. And, and just in the context, I'm not saying like, oh, and then you're going to go out and be in the rainforest and stop the logger. No, like sit and just be with nature. Yeah, I do. I agree. I think that is for me still the number one, most important thing, no matter what age you are, is just finding that time still to decompress and relax and spend some time in green space. I think that's hugely important. I also think that something that is important for me that to kind of expand on what you were saying about watch the doom scrolling, but also remember when you see these, these negative things and these sort of negative predictions about, or, you know, the way that things are trending, it's always helpful to me to remember that first of all, no, nobody can see the future and I'm not saying to ignore these things, but, but we, we don't know 100%. These are predictions. These are trends that we're looking at. And also remember that most of the time, these are things that will happen if nothing changes. And I, I like to say that, that things are changing every day and they're not changing maybe fast enough as we would like them to, but there are so many wonderful people out there working every day, whether that is conservationists out in the field or whether that is 
people like us and, and you folks listening that are working to make positive change. So I think you have to look harder for those stories than the Arctic ice melting stories for sure, but they are out there and that always brings me, uh, helps to rekindle my hope, I, I should say. So I, I think that looking for those positive stories is important too. And again, that's not to gloss over the big issues, but I think it is really important to remember what people are doing and remember those positive impacts that we can have as well. So thanks for, thanks for listening to our discussion today. We hope you guys enjoyed it. Maybe got a little bit uh, of something out of it and stay tuned and we'll wrap up this week's episode. everybody every week we're going to try and leave you with an action um hopefully it'll be more fun homework than <laughs> than harder homework and that is the case for this week this you is this is all good get stuff. graded you will not get graded but we also want to know if you're doing it so tag us on social media if you are doing our homework tag us show a picture we'll share what you're doing we'd love to see it so Sarah, what is our action for this week? So probably not surprising given everything that we talked about today. Your assignment for this week is just to go outside, whatever you want to do, walk your dog, go on a hike, read a book outside, go fly a kite, whatever you would like to do, try to see if you can hit that magical two hour mark uh this week so sometime between this week and our our next podcast see if you can hit that two hours in nature mark and like casey said tag us let us know if you're doing it and have fun with it yes that's the most important part of this assignment is that you have to have fun um hopefully the weather is better for you this upcoming week than it is today for us but we're going to also do this homework. That's the yes. goal. Is we're also doing this. So if it is uh, not so nice weather for us and it's not so nice weather for you, just remember that we're all in this together and we're doing it too. Yeah. <laughs> Great. Well, thanks everybody. We really appreciate you joining us once again, Casey. It's been fun. It's been a pleasure. We'll see you next week.